on today's episode, part two of debunking leg length discrepancy. Welcome to the Run Smarter podcast, the podcast helping you overcome your current and future running injuries by educating and transforming you into a healthier, stronger, smarter runner. If you're like me, running is life, but more often than not, injuries disrupt this lifestyle. And once you are injured, you're looking for answers and met with bad advice and conflicting messages circulating the running community. The world shouldn't be like this. You deserve to run injury-free and have access to the right information. That's why I've made it my mission to bring clarity and control to every runner. My name is Brody Sharp. I am a physiotherapist, a former chronic injury sufferer, and your podcast host. I am excited that you have found this podcast and by default become the Run Smarter Scholar. So let's work together to overcome your injury, restore your confidence, and start spreading the right information back into your running community. So let's begin today's lesson. Okay, let's dive in. Uh, There may be a bit of an echo around here because I am now in my new house. My girlfriend and I have moved into Rosanna. Um, It has been a stressful last four days with, you know, all of COVID not allowing our friends and family to help us with the move. So we've spent the last four days moving everything ourselves. And then just um, yesterday, we had to hire removalists to... Uh, take care of the big stuff, the big beds and things that we can't fit in our cars and do several loads. But yeah, we're in our new place, the downstairs basement kind of area where my podcast studio slash treatment room slash physio clinic is going to be, um, doesn't quite reach, uh, doesn't have a good signal for Wi-Fi or the MBN. So I have temporarily moved upstairs to uh, one of our bedrooms and we do have a couple of boxes in here which can absorb a lot of the echo, but you might still hear a lot of that. Um, I have definitely had a break from any sort of strength training or running in the last couple of days. Not a lot of sleep. I think I mentioned that last episode, but um, slowly getting my sleep back, which is good. And a part of me thought like a very, very brief glimpse or doubt of me losing fitness, of not running for the last four days, of me not doing my strength work and maybe losing strength. But it just goes to show just that's the kind of mindset that a lot of us feel when we're not running or not being as productive as we can. And that's why we always get injured. But when I think about it, one, okay, I'm not getting a lot of sleep, so it's not good to to train too heavily. But two, I've been moving boxes for the last four days. This is strength training in itself and still being very proactive and thankful that I have built up a lot of strength in order for my my back not to get sore and for my legs to deal with a lot of this lifting and load. So focusing on the positives and the outcome rather than me just being very scarce and being, oh, I should be running. And, you know, if I was to run over the last couple of days and then get injured, I would have told myself, Brody, that was a stupid move. You should have trained smarter. So being a bit preemptive, uh, being a little bit sensible, trying to get out of the heat of the moment and yeah, just trying to train smarter. Uh, hopefully I can get a booster and send, uh, start recording downstairs as well. And hopefully we can start removing a lot of this echo. But today we're going to delve into part two of 
debunking this leg length discrepancy. Uh, we're still covering the same paper. The paper came out as a two-parter. So part one, we talked about the prevalence, the magnitude, the effects, clinical significance of leg length discrepancy. Then part two came out. Um, let me just bring it up. I probably should have prepared for this. But part two was titled uh, Functional or Unloaded Leg Length Asymmetry. So trying to dissociate the two, which we'll talk about. We talk about heel lifts. We talk about um, clinical relevance as well. But before we did that, I had the idea to, uh, I was, I guess, curious as well, just to hear your thoughts and your experiences around lower length discrepancy and so uh, I have collected a whole bunch of Instagram and Facebook replies of what your experiences have been like. So if, I, if you've, uh, I guess, commented um, after this recording, but I've got several in here and I've actually tried to um, condense a lot of it. So if your comment wasn't in its entirety, it's only just because I've quickly cut it down just for the viewer's sake for the um, podcast, just trying to condense it a little bit more. So we'll start with the Instagram uh, replies because I did put out there, what have your experiences been like? What were the interventions? What were the effects of the interventions? And so um, a podiatry foot clinic, so foot clinic Northern Ireland, who I've worked with in the past, um, commented and said, occasionally we find functional leg length issues. And if I do, if I do, I always want to have an opinion from a physio to see if the there's any pelvic lower back issues, unless it's a significant difference, I'm reluctant to prescribe a heel raise. Um, that's come. That's uh, a pretty good take, I'd say. The hobbyist bodybuilder said that my left hip is 11 mil lower than my right after slipping on ice, so having an accident. Chiropractor put me in a 9 mil heel lift to help straighten my pelvis. Only a few weeks in, the entire body is trying to adjust, so it's been quite recent of a change. Hip pain has improved already. Uh, however, my knees have noticed the change, which I guess means that the knees are starting to be a bit uh, troublesome. My disorganized crazy life on Instagram uh, commented, I've had issues with lower leg discrepancy since a child. When I was nine, I was five centimeters different, so that's enormous. Um, I was, so I ended up having surgery to correct it. I now have one to two centimeters difference, but there are anatomy changes in my legs. Sophie Lane says that she has, um, I have a 10 mil millimeter difference. Only found out a few weeks ago after battling a new injury. I'm sure there's a few factors involved, but putting an extra insole in the other shoe has really settled things down. So um, insoles have helped Sophie. I want to say it's linsgad3 is the the Instagram handle. I have seen a few patients told one leg is shorter, but it's actually the pelvic imbalance. So I guess that's just um, a, the, the original cause. Uh, Matt Bull said something quite interesting. So Matt says he has a 13 mil leg length discrepancy and primary effects the right hip, glute med tightness, despite it, it actually being the stronger side. Poor application of training load is the cause of the injury, but the imbalance doesn't help. So um, I 100% agree with you. It's, it kind of fits the narrative or the the, the timeline, the storyline of our part one of the episode, um, which I'll do a recap in a second. Trail physio 
Millbrook says, um, I did a thesis on leg length discrepancy, some interesting theories out there on its origins and effects, but overall next to no impact on injuries and pain. So again, follows the similar findings that we had um, in last episode. Clinically, I feel too often it is misused as a scapegoat for non-specific pains and problems. Very wise, I'd say. Um, even in some cases with the leg length discrepancy of um, you know under 2.5 centimeters, she says. However, validity that the, is measured, a heel lift can perhaps positively impact recovery. It would never be the only thing I do. Looking forward to the podcast. Cheers. So very interesting that you've done your thesis on this and it's good that um, you have done, I guess, the, the thesis and it kind of fits with the, the same paper that we're discussing. Um, Libby McNaughton says, leg length discrepancy is apparently the cause of my ITB issues and tightness on one side of my back. I was told was told I should use an insole in one shoe, but was given, but wasn't given any more advice than I have, uh, and so I've never done it. Rebecca Becker says that my right leg tends to pull up shorter. I have a history of a stress fracture on the left side and foot stress fracture also on the left. I manage it with a massage, chiropractic care, and mobility. I go through phases where the leg remains stable and when it acts up again. So. I'll assume that acts up again means that it changes length, maybe. We have seven Amanito. I have a leg length discrepancy left greater than right due to uh, alignment, due to misalignment, healing of a stress fracture. Um, I was told I had I needed surgery later in life to fix it. Doubt it since it's too small. Um, I have running injuries. All my running injuries happen now on that left side. So looking at TFL, glutes, and meniscus injuries. Chris Luncheon. Uh, yes, I was diagnosed and given orthotics. Several years later, the PT figured out that it was a it was SI joint dysfunction, I guess, rather than a leg length discrepancy. So that, that's all the people that came out on um, Instagram. We have four people from Facebook. So Bridget says that I had a slip disc when I was, um, from when I started my running journey. The podiatrist said one leg was longer and gave me orthotics. Didn't seem to help. So I went to the physio and they told me to take it out and gave me exercises, which helped. I think my leg will always be longer than the other, um, by two centimeters. Maybe she says regular chiropractor sessions really help too. Paul Turner, a podiatrist I saw a few years ago said that I had a shorter leg and flat feet and it was probably the cause of my pain. The podiatrist prescribed custom orthotics and a heel lift for the short leg to level me out. I found them uncomfortable and found a developed an abnormal walking gait and a bad pain in my neck on the one side. So you might be interested to what we discuss later in this episode as well. Oh, he goes on to say, I ditched the orthotics and the heel lifts within a few months. They weren't helping the knee pain either. So I guess it's worth saying, I actually might mention this at the end because I have, um, I've just thought of something new that <laughs> I want to include there. Uh, I have tons of ideas when I talk about these, these sort of topics. So it's good that if I do have a, uh, something that I want to discuss, I quickly write down. Otherwise I just forget it. So thanks for that, Paul. Kylie says that I have a discrepancy 
don't remember the measurement, but was told it was too small that it wasn't likely causing any issues. Fantastic. Tony says that I have one leg. One leg is one centimeter longer than the left leg. And my doctor told me that probably causes my right knee meniscus injury since the right leg seems to absorb more impact forces. He also told me that, that it is due to my uneven pelvis and suggested some correction exercises. After three months, the leg length discrepancy still exists. So a lot of people been told they have leg length discrepancy of various different degrees. Um, I see we have not much benefits with heel lifts, then we have benefits with heel lifts. Uh, we have heel lifts causing other issues. Um, and so, good, let's, let's dive into the, the content for today. Um, so quick little recap of part one, just to refresh our memory. Um, I think I will do this recap format a little bit more regularly if the content itself is quite dense, um, because I think repetition is really good for this style of format. So part one, we looked at the prevalence of leg length inequality and shown that in 90% of the population, 90% uh, have at least some form of leg length discrepancy and the average across the population being around five millimeters. So 5.2 millimeters to be exact. Just quickly chiming in here to let you scholars know, I have just updated my five day injury prevention challenge. This is one email per day for five days, learning new concepts and diving into the science on how you can reduce your risk of injury. The sign up link is in the show notes. So fill in your details and I'll be waiting for you in email number one tomorrow. And then they had a look at the effects of lower leg differences and found that an uneven pelvis was the most common method of compensating um, for a leg length discrepancy of around about 22 millimeters. So we did find in the prevalence that people who had a leg length discrepancy of more than 20 millimeters or two centimeters was one in 1000. And so they found if you have a leg length discrepancy over that, you're more likely to compensate with an uneven pelvis. And they found within that particular section that there was no correlation with leg length discrepancy and low back pain. And so they also found, while well, we also delved into the clinical significance of it and um, the importance of relevance and um, pretty much like developing the theory of like the body would adapt and the kind of conclusion, I guess with the, the clinical significance, uh, it, it kind of needs to be greater than 20 mil for there to start being some compensation. So for it to actually have some clinical relevance and in a conclusion, based on the relevance, we sort of established that a discrepancy of less than 10 millimeters, even with heavier loading, heavier, um, like lower back compensations or heavier repetitive loading, um, does appear to not be clinically significant. So regardless of if your leg length discrepancy is less than 10 millimeters, regardless of what you're going to do, you should be fine. If you have a leg length discrepancy between 10 millimeters and 20 millimeters, the increased chance is the increased likelihood of it being clinically significant rises, but needs to have some sort of abrupt loading or repetitive loading present. So, um, however, the evidence is lacking around that. It would be, uh, and it would appear 
that if you have a leg length discrepancy of 15 to 20 mil from childhood, from really early onset, it doesn't seem to be clinically significant either. And so they were the um, key takeaways. It, it seems that um, mo in most cases of severe leg length discrepancy, you do need to have some sort of abrupt change in loading or a training error to be present in order for there to be symptoms. So now part two, the introduction within part two, they say the, they, they talk about the phenomenon of a functional short leg. So this will be considered in part two of the review. And the objective is to define the functional short leg, how it uh, differs from the anatomical leg length discrepancy and explore the association with neuromuscular dysfunction. And so in order for you to best understand what that actually means, best that we consider two different types of this leg length discrepancy. So one is what we call anatomical leg length discrepancy. If it's almost like the skeleton, um, just the bones themselves. So that's if one leg is actually longer than the other based on its skeleton, um, caused by a natural asymmetry of a um, variety of different factors. So it can be natural or it could be something like a stress fracture. It could be something like bone disease. It could be something like um, complications of like a hip surgery. So we're changing the skeleton or we're changing the way the skeleton develops so, and the end result would just be one leg longer than the other. That's this anatomical leg length discrepancy. Given the long-term loading, the body is expected to adapt to this approach, um, establishing um, like compensatory structural changes. And this is deemed completely normal. Like if you have a stress fracture and the um, say like 10 years ago and one leg is five millimeters different than the other, the body would just compensate. And this is just a normal sort of thing that the body does. So that's one side, this anatomical skeleton leg length discrepancy. Then we have this functional short leg is what the paper called it. The functional short leg, um, they sort of do this unloading test where you're either facing up, facing down, and they look at the feet and examine what the differences in the feet are. And when there are differences in the feet, they kind of deem it as neuromuscular dysfunction. So neuro being like the nerves or how the, the body activates the muscles via the nerves and muscular being the muscles. So neuromuscular dysfunction. Um, given <clears throat> this test they do um, and the overall indication is there's a functional problem, it's important to know whether this actual test is reliable or accurate. Um, because we could have a health professional assess your leg lengths and say, oh, one leg's longer than the other. You must have a tight muscle up in your back or you must have um, laxity on, or like maybe your glutes aren't firing, which is causing it to be slack or putting like a muscle activation or a nerve activation cause behind it. So that's the functional short leg. So those are the difference. Those are the two different things that they're exploring within part two of this paper. So um, they wanted to start with looking at heel lifts, looking at heel lifts after someone has adapted to see if you put a heel lift in one side, what's going to happen. And a lot of the studies that they mentioned, they do what, what they call a lateral flexion test, which is you get someone to stand up, 
you get someone, you put both your hands by your side and then you take in turns of sliding one hand down the side of your leg and you're, you're bending sideways to one side, then you're bending sideways to the other side and seeing what the difference is like. And so they do this lateral flexion test and it was studied. Um, this paper followed subjects 10 years after a leg length discrepancy caused by a, a femoral stress fracture and um, it occurred after there was what they call skeletal maturity. So the body had undergone adolescence, achieved like its full skeletal development, and then they've had this stress fracture. And despite the compensatory lumbar scoliosis, so they have a little S-curve in their spine, these subjects had symmetrical lateral flexion of the lower back, prompting the authors to comment that the acquired leg length discrepancy, because it's acquired due to the stress fracture, produced permanent structural abnormality to the lumbar spine, significant anatomical leg length, discrepancy, leg length discrepancy acquired after skeletal maturity does not result in adaptive structural changes within a 10-year period. So they've got this leg length discrepancy, but they've got the same range of movement. And so um, it seems that there's some sort of, um, due to like the compensatory of the lumbar spine or what the body's doing, it just has naturally um, adapted. Another study looked at the effects of the significance of a, a large leg length discrepancy. They had the mean was uh, 30 millimeters, three centimeters, which is, I don't know, you might have to find one in a couple of thousand to find someone with that greater difference. Uh, but they acquired this prior to skeletal maturity. So the skeleton hadn't fully formed yet and now they're now they are mature now the skeleton has formed and they're looking at the effects and so the average age was 28 when they're looking at this um, in this group there was considerable asymmetry in the um, lateral flexion test after placing a heel lift under the short leg to the level pelvis so uh, this indicated that the body had permanently compensated for the structural changes to the spine and pelvis because if you have a leg length discrepancy and we're talking 30 millimeters as an average, you'd expect them when they don't have heel lifts under their body for there to be a difference in their, um, in their side flexion in, their, in that kind of test. But what they found is that the only way there was a side flexion difference is if they placed a, a, a heel lift under someone's foot. And so if they do place it under one foot and then there's a difference, it goes to show, well, maybe there was a permanent compensation um, prior to us placing that heel lift under. So if the, uh, if the body remodels and adapts to the pelvic unleveling or the torsion caused by this discrepancy, then by putting the heel lift under the side of the low iliac crest or like the shorter leg, one is actually rising the body and that it's, it's rising it beyond its adapted uh, level. In other words, the unleveling pelvis of those with this discrepancy has now adapted to its new normal. And so that's what this paper's shown. Um, interesting enough, we're then looking at the clinical kind of functioning, the physiological functioning, and there's a couple of um, different views or different findings based on different studies, but it's been presumed that an anatomical discrepancy because of its effects on the structure, its changes in the spine, its changes in the leg length, 
that there may be increased muscle tension and changes in strength, changes in coordination. These like physiological changes due to this discrepancy. So we have Knutson and Owens, uh, the paper that they looked at, they found that those with a discrepancy had significant decreased endurance times for the erector muscles, so the, the muscles of the back, and the quadratus lumbarum muscles, so still muscles in the back. So they had decreased endurance levels if they had a discrepancy. These results stand in contrast to Minsa, who did a study, uh, who expected to find their, their hypotheses were to um, find a greater fatigue in the trunk muscles um, for those who have a discrepancy compared to those who don't have a discrepancy. And so they looked at it, they found some people, they had an average discrepancy of 10 millimeters. So we're looking at double like the, the average, the, the, the mean in the average population. The number was 18. So they got 18 people, which is quite a low number. Um, but they found no difference between the leg length um, discrepancy group and the non-discrepancy group for fatigued muscles um, or neuromuscular control. So they're, they're relatively the same. Another study, Yen et al. examined neuromuscular performance on the trunk extension muscles in a group of young men and uh, with an estimated discrepancy of 10 to 15 millimeters, both with and without a heel lift. And there was no statistically significant effect with the, the heel lift in. Um, and yeah, the, there was, um, they tested a whole bunch of different variables, but found no difference in performance, no difference in um, strength, no difference in um, those back muscles when they had the heel lift compared to when they didn't have the heel lift. We had Morel in another study examined standing balance in subjects with a discrepancy of at least 10 millimeters versus those who didn't have a discrepancy and found no difference. They concluded that the individuals with the discrepancy are, um, are not less stable than those without during um, a stance, during like different balancing exercises. And the probable reason for this long-term, uh, the, the finding for this is long-term adaptation to the neuromuscular system with the people who do have this discrepancy. So the first study did find a significant difference in endurance times for the back muscles, but then we've got other competing studies that find no difference. And so that's the, I guess that's where we stand with that. We just have to follow the evidence. Um, the clinical implications of heel lifts. Um, so the paper says that now we can turn to the dilemma of how lifts, how uh, these heel lifts have a positive effect on back pain and muscle activity given the, the most anatomical, um, given now that we know the clinical significance of leg length discrepancy. So still going back to part one, we know that the clinical significance, um, the clinical relevance, it needs to be greater than 20 millimeters. We know that the, um, the effects it has on the body, if it's less than that. So now for someone who does have a discrepancy of greater than 20 millimeters, what can we do in terms of clinical implications for these heel lifts? So the paper goes on to say that if a person has pelvic uh, torsion due to this discrepancy near 
the limitations of the body to adapt. So we're looking at quite a significant large amount. Um, so it's it, it may be too much for the body to adapt. And um, there is this QL quadratus lumborum muscle in your lower back uh, hypertonicity. So tension. It's with its with its ability to cause pelvic rotation. Um, there could be pain as a result. So based on some research, so they use Alum et al. proposed that while the muscle receptors likely have adapted to this pelvic rotation, pelvic kind of or lower back rotation caused by the discrepancy, further pelvic torsion caused by QL hypertonicity, so looking at the, the tension of the muscle may stimulate the balance of receptors causing um, contraction, causing pain. A lift would reduce the, the amount of pelvic torsion and lower the proprioceptive balance that triggers this threshold and theoretically eliminating chronic painful muscle, muscle contractions. So the theory being that it may not do a lot to level out the pelvis, but it might do a little bit to help with the hypertonicity of some of these muscles due to the receptors, the proprioceptive receptors within the, within the body and therefore may eliminate some pain. So there's the theory um, being proposed by some of these papers. Um, and then they say, on the other hand, that pure anatomical discrepancies that range above 20 millimeters, so that one in one, one in a thousand, the upward limit of the adaptive compensation so the body may be struggling to compensate or adapt may stimulate sacroiliac so the joints in the the pelvis and lumbar receptors or proprioceptors causing this reflex ultimately the pain in the muscle contractions will be relieved by a lift to level out the pelvis so that's kind of what they propose like in, in the end like when they look at some of the studies and the studies that produced it seems like some heel lifts can help some people, especially for those who have quite a large discrepancy, especially for those who have like lower back muscles, particularly on one side being really tight, really, um, really, I guess, tonic, what we call it. So this tension that's just constantly built up. So that may help them. Um, but the note that I want to leave in at the start was as soon as you put in these heel lifts, it might help that situation. But we know based on, you know, running the universal principles that we all know, we don't like abrupt changes in your training. The body just doesn't respond well to an abrupt change. And so while the heel lift may help the lower back theoretically, which we can do through trial and error, the rest of the body is going to have that sudden abrupt change, that being the feet, that being the ankles, that being the knees, further up in the body. Um, it's just a, a change. It's just, you wouldn't go and run straight away with shoes that have a heel lift different to what you're used to. That increases your likelihood of a training error, a risk, an abrupt change to your training. And this is going to have the same effect if someone gives you a heel lift because you have back pain, because you have a discrepancy and say, here's a heel lift. It's, you know, five to 10 millimeters, whatever it may be go survive, go thrive in your daily life. How much would that be a shock to the system if we know anything about injuries and the rest of the body? 
And yes, we could probably um, slowly adapt to that heel lift. You might want to slowly wean into it, not wear it all throughout the day, maybe wear it for 15 minutes, see how it goes next time, 20 minutes, next time, 30 minutes. Um, that might be a more sensible approach, but we need to keep that in mind as well. So the paper concludes that an anatomic, remember that skeleton, the anatomic discrepancy uh, under 20 millimeters and a leg length alignment asymmetry caused by muscle hypertonicity may interact in the loading postures, the standing postures, but not in an unloaded posture. So if you're lying down, if you're sitting, um, those sort of unloaded structures, it doesn't, it wouldn't um, change anything. Any leg length alignment asymmetry due to muscle hypertonicity should be eliminated before the necessary treatments, such as heel lifts and those sort of things. So if there is muscle hypertonicity or some sort of real high, real tension there, maybe we should address that first before the heel lift because we're, talk, we're looking at a muscle that's really strained. Maybe we go back to helping that muscle strain and then slowly incorporating other things when it comes to leg length discrepancies and the um, heel lifts, those sort of interventions. So I've got a couple of key takeaways here. So in a clinical setting, therapists, uh, I've been a physiotherapist for uh, like almost 10 years now. And when someone comes in with pain, you want to help them. You want to help them the best way you can. And the best way we can is to try and find a cause for their injuries. A lot of times we want to find a solution. We want to find the causes and then help with those causes because it it makes sense. We can help with the education process. The person on the receiving end feels reassured that we've found a cause to this, um, this pain. We've got the solution in front of us and all in all the therapeutic kind of experience is more um, beneficial. So we're looking for things. We're looking for things. And someone comes in with say low back pain, which is an extremely common thing. Um, the most common thing that I'd see in clinics. And then if we were to do a test and say, Hey, you've got a leg length discrepancy. You've got one leg longer than the other. Um, which again, we know is extremely common. There may be because we have the therapists want to help these people. They want to try and find a cause. They want to try and find a solution. We can link that low back pain to leg length discrepancy. But we know low back pain, very, very prevalent throughout someone's lifetime. And we know that 90% of the people out there have some version of leg length discrepancy. So it could be very a common experience for a therapist or a, um, a patient to link the two things together. And it's very similar to what um, Jonas Thorland that we're talking to with regards to meniscus injuries. We know that very small tears, very small degenerative changes in the meniscus is extremely common. We also know that uh, knee pain is very common, especially in runners. So if someone has knee pain and then goes and gets a scan and then says, and then there's shown to have some sort of meniscus injuries, it may be a common experience for someone to link that pain to the meniscus and say that pain is caused by your meniscus. Very similar circumstances when it comes to low back pain or any other running related injury to leg length discrepancy. Keep that in mind. Um, if we were to try and explain it to the patient, we want to start management. This is what we've found. This is how we want to change your physical activity. This is how we want to 
give you some movements, some stretches, some strength, and this is how we're slowly going to return to sport. That all that management can still be very effective, um, and you, if it is effective, it might increase your narrative that it is due to the leg length discrepancy. But if you're looking at all these several interventions at play, if you were given heel lifts as well as all these other things to change, and then you felt a lot better. It might just be all those other things. It might not be the heel lift. It might be massage. It might be load management. It might be just general rest. Because if someone gets injured, if they're injured from running, they might have a week off. Someone might give them a heel lift. They might be they might be given strength and exercises, and then they might be given a return to run program. All of those interventions are fantastic. Um, and if you if you really respond well to that and you're back to pain-free running after that, you might think that you need a heel lift for the rest of your life. You might think that those heel lifts were the magic bullet, but maybe all the other things were at play as well. So research may show the relevance of heel lifts in populations with a very significant leg length discrepancy, um, maybe one in 1,000, maybe less often, um, and for those who do show that their QR muscles have this hypertonicity. Um, for those who don't have a clinically significant discrepancy, so we're talking under 20 millimeters, uh, heel lifts may work. They may work in the same way that what I think about is orthotics. So we know orthotics work. We know orthotics can work really well for some people, but we don't know exactly why. And even the podiatry gurus who are very well versed in the research, they're still having theories about why it works because we know it's not a change to your um, anatomy. We know that orthotics don't change with helping pronation. Um, we know that people pronate the same when they have are given orthotics, but we know that their pain levels reduce in some people, not all people, but some people. And so what's going on there? Maybe there's a placebo, maybe what we call um, kinetics. So the body might move exactly the same, but how those muscles operate might be changed. Um, maybe it's proprioceptive differences. Uh, we don't know. Maybe the heel lifts are having that same effect. Maybe there is a bit of placebo in there. Maybe the mechanics, uh, maybe the kinetics are working a little bit differently. Maybe the way you percept the proprioception with the, the feel of that heel lift is reassuring you that something good is happening. But um, where the danger comes in, similar to the experience of the orthotics, is I don't feel like the heel lifts should be a long-term solution or be skeptical that it is a long-term solution because especially if it's associated with a training error. So if you have been a runner, you're training for a marathon, you go for a really long run, you get injured, you come into a therapist and they say, you you need heel lifts because you have leg length discrepancy. You need this for the rest of your life. That's a little bit, I'd be very skeptical for that because you've had a training error You've been running your whole life without injuries with that leg length discrepancy and you've been totally fine. All that's happened is there's been a training error, injury. You probably don't need heel lifts for the rest of your life. If you respond well to the heel lift, then keep it in. But maybe we should wean it off and have a bit more of a longer term strategy in place. So there's one of the dangers. The other danger is the poor narrative and the, the disempowering narrative that is attached to it. 
if someone says you're constantly going to get injured because you have a leg length discrepancy of five millimeters, it's constantly going to have your calf working harder or your hips tightening up or your lower back falling out of alignment. All of those are really disempowering and that language is extremely threatening, which I really dislike. And so it's very similar with orthotics. We see it very common that someone has a training error they get foot pain, ankle pain, knee pain, what have you. And then they are assessed and they say they have, oh, you have pronated feet. You have flat feet. Um, you need orthotics. You need orthotics for the rest of your life. Otherwise, your feet are going to keep collapsing. Your knees are going to collapse. Your um, hips are going to fall out of alignment and you're going to constantly still be getting injured. But all that's happened is the training error. You've been running the same way your entire life. Maybe you just need some load management skills. Maybe... Um, we just need to slowly build you back up, maybe increase your strength, maybe in certain circumstances change how you're running. Um, but there's a better narrative attached to that. You're being more proactive. You can do a lot more when it comes to your load management. You can do these things yourself. You're not just relying on your faulty, crumbly, fall to pieces body, which this poor narrative creates. So be careful with that. Um, so when it comes to heel lifts, like you can try it similar to orthotics, try it, see if it works. If it doesn't work, then maybe it's worth trying something else with a bit more, um, that's a bit more robust in terms of long-term strategies. And so that's kind of my final take of things. Um, I think based on looking at all of your responses on Instagram, responses on Facebook, seems like everyone's had a whole bunch of different experiences. It seems like the narrative has been different. Someone said, oh, it's a little bit of a leg length discrepancy. It's probably too minor for it to be an issue. Don't worry about it. Compared to someone who said that um, they need heel lifts or someone said that they're more likely to get injured in the future. And then we've also seen different responses to heel lifts. So we've seen someone respond really favorably. We've had some people that have had um, associated knee pain because of it. We've had some that had no difference, so they've just thrown them out. And so this kind of fits your experiences have kind of, they kind of fit the, um, this paper and what the, the studies have shown. And so hopefully this has highlighted a few things. Hopefully this is reassured you of a few things. Um, so I can hopefully things continue in this way. I hope you enjoyed this two parter. Um, no doubt it's going to be something that I constantly reference people to when they ask about these sort of things. So yeah, that, that's it for the two-parter. Um, hopefully I can move down to the basement soon and put together my treatment room, my podcast room, my um, my gym. I'll keep you guys updated on the, the changes, keep you updated on the equipment that I get and uh, all the exciting stuff that comes along with it. So um, keep following on Facebook and Instagram and if you want to stay updated on those. And as we sign off, remember, every new insight brings you one step closer to your next running breakthrough. And that concludes another Run Smarter lesson. I hope you walk away from this episode feeling empowered and proud to be a Run Smarter scholar. Because when I think of runners like you who are listening, I think of runners who recognize the power of knowledge, who don't just learn, but implement these lessons, who are done with repeating the same injury cycle over and over again, who want to take an educated, active role in their rehab, who are looking for evidence-based, long-term solutions and will not accept problematic quick fixes. And last but not least, 
who serve a cause bigger than themselves and pass on the right information to other runners who need it. I look forward to bringing you another episode and helping you on your Run Smarter path.